Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In his new book, The Socialist Temptation, author Ian Murray examines the resurgence of socialist ideology in America and across the world. Seemingly discredited just 30 years ago by the failures of the Soviet Union and much of communist bloc Eastern Europe, socialism has seen a revival of support and popularity in the West. Marie sets out to explain why the socialist temptation endures, even after its own massive failures, the inconsistencies in socialist thought that prevent it from ever working in practice, and how to show young people who didn't learn the lessons of history the sorry truth about socialism. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined now by Ian Murray, who directs the Center for Economic Freedom at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., where he is the vice president for strategy and a senior fellow for the last 15 years. He has written and lectured extensively on free markets and the environment, labor policy, finance, the EU, and trade. And he is the author of the new book, The Socialist Temptation. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on Acton Line. It's a delight to be with you today. Why don't we start with defining terms? What is socialism? That's the uh, trillion-dollar question these days. Uh, traditionally, uh, socialism has been defined as popular control of the means of uh, production, distribution, and exchange. Uh, that means uh, that uh, the government either owns or directly manages through uh, bureaucratic regulation, uh, basically all of private industry. That would be the, the ideal of socialism. Uh, however, there have been various different forms of socialism over the years. There have been revolutionary socialism, such as we saw in, uh, in, in the, uh, the Soviet Union and China and Cuba and places like that, where uh, socialism has been imposed by popular revolution. Uh, there's democratic socialism, uh, such as happened in Western Europe after the Second World War, where uh, the uh, socialism was uh, uh, agreed upon uh, by the people through popular elections and was uh, installed through, uh, through traditional legal channels. Uh, then we saw a sort of retreat back from that uh, uh, democratic socialism, uh, it, uh, in, in, especially in Western Europe in, in the 1980s mostly, and uh, 1990s, uh, to uh, a, a, a much different form, which uh, is generally known as social democracy. Uh, that has a large welfare state, uh, and, uh, but, but a, a vibrant uh, private industry. Uh, so it isn't really socialist. Uh, and then there are other forms of socialism, such as the uh, uh, the Chinese form, or which is uh, 
capitalism with uh, with Chinese characteristics, as they call it, uh, but where the, uh, the the government basically uh, directs private industry and uh, and significantly controls it. Uh, those are the forms of socialism around the world uh, today. Uh, whether they're what uh, America's democratic socialists uh, mean by socialism, that's another question. Do you think there is a Rorschach quality to it that people can, because you, you gave several different definitions of forms that socialism has taken over the years, the kind of the lack of a concrete definition that seems to apply to it is this thing and only this thing allows people to kind of project onto it whatever they want it to be. I think we see this in the form of arguments uh, here in the United States about, oh, you don't like socialism. Well, you know, literally anything the government is involved in is, is socialism because there's a government involvement. Uh, do you think that lack of an agreed upon definition um, opens up a lot of space for it to be whatever people want it to be to them? Uh, yes, I, I do believe that's the case. And I do believe that uh, it also allows for a sort of rhetorical slipperiness on behalf of uh, especially politicians. Uh, for instance, um, the uh, uh, the Democratic Congressman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, AOC, uh, uh, when she was interviewed on Anderson Cooper uh, last year and asked to uh, say what her form of socialism was, uh, uh, when he raised the specter of Cuba and Venezuela, she she just laughed and said, "No, no, no. What I want is is something a lot more like uh, like we see in Western Europe, like in uh, the UK or uh, or in uh, Sweden." Uh, but when you look at her policies, her policies are much more traditionally socialist than any policies that are currently being uh, being pursued in uh, uh, Sweden and the UK, which, as I said, uh, rejected. Uh, those socialist policies in the in the 1980s and uh, turn back to to the free market. So there's a rhetorical slipperiness here. I think that 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 this failure to agree on a definition of, so of socialism, a failure to define your terms, uh, really allows them to get away with. With regard to Sweden in particular, uh, it would seem to me that it is a nation with policies that perhaps some could be described as socialist, but primarily what you have going on there is largely a market economy with high tax rates and a very generous social safety net. Um, uh, would you call that socialist? Uh, I, I would call it a social democracy, but I would not call it socialist. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it, what, What's interesting, as I said, was that the, the, the Swedes actually did have a traditional socialist state, a democratic socialist state. Uh, they uh, had a very high wealth tax. They had uh, government control uh, of, uh, of industry. They had uh, either through uh, ownership or through regulation. Uh, they rejected all of that. Uh, they, uh, Sweden has, uh, I believe, privatized more industries than any uh, any other country in the world. Uh, they've even privatized a part of social security. Uh, America's democratic socialists would uh, throw their hands up in horror at the idea of privatizing social security. They have school choice. Uh, it's the basic system. Yes, a lot of uh, a lot of the schools are actually still government run, but there's a sizable proportion of schools which are essentially uh, charter schools uh, with, uh, uh, that, are, that are thundered through a voucher system. So, uh, and, and again, school choice is something that, uh, that, that a lot of American democratic socialists would, uh, 
are, are just horrified by. So, uh, so, so um, if if you look at what what Sweden is, it's it's very different uh, in terms of the policies that are being uh, pursued there from the policies that uh, America's democratic socialists want to see uh, see imposed. That's interesting because you hear Sweden so often as an example of what American socialists supposedly would want. Um, I'm talking to you right now from the city of Chicago, where we have, I believe, nine aldermen in the city council who are self-proclaimed democratic socialists. And, you know, we hear this example of Sweden as kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we'd be more like that? But you're right, the policies they seem to suggest are often not not consonant with that. Um, we have had socialist if, movements. If, if I may, there's yes. one other point that I think is quite important about Sweden, which is that Sweden has a uh, a very... Uh, very broad and flat tax base. Uh, the the middle classes in Sweden are taxed uh, at a much much higher rate than uh, th- th- than they are in, uh, in in America. But if you look at democratic socialists' tax plans, they all talk about uh, just taxing the rich, and they never uh, n- never include extending this uh, taxation to. Uh, uh, to, uh, to, to, to the middle classes, these high rates of taxation in the middle classes. And when you talk to Swedes, Swedes actually say that uh, the, the, the middle class accepts this high tax rate as part of buying in to the large welfare state. So, uh, the, the, again, there's a, a disconnect between what the, uh, what, what the politicians are saying and uh, mm-hmm. the reality on the ground. So as we've talked about what socialism is and isn't, before we get to what is the socialist temptation, perhaps as an entree to that, I want to ask you, um, there have been socialist movements in America that we can point to throughout history, uh, but they've never really gained a whole lot of purchase in the American mind, at least not, I would say, to the extent that they have right now. Of course, you have Warner Sombart um, wondering why is there no socialism in America, and I believe part of his explanation is that we don't have a feudal past that has informed much of uh, the European understanding of socialism. Um, what? Why do you think we have not had the same level and enthusiasm for socialist movements in America leading up to our present moment where it does seem to be a more burgeoning movement? I, th- I think uh, one of the clues to this uh, this question, which is a very good question, is um, if you look at the history of the American labor movement, uh, if you look at the European labor movements, uh, they were very much class-based. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, they were socialist from, from, from the beginning. The idea was that uh, the, uh, labor was the working class and working class was labor, uh, and that therefore uh, any, uh, any political activity on behalf of, uh, the, of the working class uh, by labor, uh, by organized labor, uh, had to be socialist. In America, there's a very different uh, conception. Uh, Samuel Gompas, the, uh, uh, the, the, the early uh, leader of the American Federation of Labor, uh, very much rejected socialism. He viewed uh, the, uh, the role of labor unions as uh, a, a bargaining uh, role uh, to bargain with uh, employers uh, in order to get the best deal for the union members not for the class as a whole. He, he, many speeches, he 
asked uh, asked uh, his uh, supporters uh, to reject the idea of uh, of a class movement uh, in favour of uh, of, of uh, doing what you could uh, to get the best deal possible for the members of the unions. Now, because it's a bargaining position, uh, that means that you really have to have a private industry. Uh, be as uh, strong and as vibrant as possible. So it's bringing in the wealth, which it can then share through the bargaining process with the work, uh, the, 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 the members of the union, the workers, employees of that, uh, of, of that industry. So the fact that the American Federation of Labor rejected socialism very early on uh, and uh, did so for many, many years uh, uh, it, it, it is quite uh, illuminating to somebody who looks at uh, labor from uh, a European perspective, like uh, I initially did when I first came to, uh, came to this country. When you look at uh, what the uh, labor unions in America were saying in the 1980s, uh, uh, the, 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 there were pos uh, positions that the, uh, the American Federation of Labor CIO were taking uh, that were to the, uh, to the right of the Reagan administration. Uh, especially when it came to uh, the Soviet Union and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the role of the uh, of, of the uh, trade unions in, um, in in Poland, for instance, was, was was very important to them. That all changed in the 1990s as uh, more and more uh, as the AFL-CIO became much more uh, much more dominated by government unions. Uh, Today, uh, only uh, about 10% of American workers in private industry are members of a union, but about a third of all government workers are. So, uh, so, so the attitude of the AFL-CIO to, the, um, uh, to, to socialism has changed considerably in a very short period of time. But I think you know, it's cru crucial to, uh, to this question of why America didn't become socialist when the rest of the developed world was toying with the idea I think, is the role of labor. The title of your book is The Socialist Temptation. What is the temptation? The temptation is that when, uh, we, are, uh, when we look around at America, we see uh, an America that is not perfect. In fact, it's extremely imperfect. And uh, socialism has easy answers to this. It speaks to us at a level of uh, the values that underpin our politics. Americans are very much uh, uh, believers in the value of fairness. They are very much believers in the value of freedom, and they are very much believers in the value of community. All, all of those underpin our politics. Socialism doesn't talk to us necessarily at the political level. It talks to us at the values level. It says America is unfair, socialism is fair. It says in America, uh, you do not have the, the, the agency to act as a free man should, socialism will provide that agency. It, they, it says that the free market capitalism is destroying community, socialism will underpin community. So it speaks at that values level and that values level is extremely tempting uh, to, uh, to, to, to people when other, uh, other political systems aren't speaking to it. I'm reminded of something from uh, Jonah Goldberg's book, Suicide of the West, where he points out that uh, liberal democratic capitalism 
required for it to be sustained are values that it didn't create and it can't replicate if lost. So the the value structure that sustains it seems to me to be eroding away, not, I would argue, and I think you would too, not as a result of capitalism or of market economies, but because of other flaws throughout our society. And do you think as a result, this has opened up, especially younger people who, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial, I'm an old millennial, but a millennial nonetheless, and uh, the Generation Z that is following them, who have grown up with various experiences of, you know, the terror attacks of 9-11 leading into somewhat of a depressed economy, leading into the financial collapse at the end of the uh, 2000s. Uh, into somewhat stagnant years in the early 2010s and now uh, into a pandemic. It's kind of the erosion of our institutions and of civil society that is happening somewhat independent to capitalism or what is jokingly referred to as late capitalism, um, that that is causing the problems and that socialism is amenable to these younger generations largely because it is a holistic system offering answers to things that otherwise would be very, very difficult to fix. I, I, I think that is very much the case. Uh, I, I think you are quite right to point to the uh, the, the erosion of our uh, of our institutions and uh, and the, the common understandings that underpinned those uh, uh, the, the, those institutions. Um, it, it's uh, important, I think, to uh, to, to, to recognise that um, part of the fault of that is uh, supporters of capitalism itself. Uh, we have forgotten how to talk to people uh, in terms of the values that they understand. You know, we'll talk to them about economics, we'll talk to them about history, uh, we'll talk to them about uh, uh, GDP and overregulation, but we're not talking to them uh, in, in, in terms of values. And that, that's something that, uh, the, the, that uh, the, uh, the capitalists... To, uh, to, to use uh, the shorthand, of the, the capitalists of the past actually knew how to do. If you look at corporate advertising in the 1930s, the last time that, uh, that, that uh, the free market system was under such sustained attack as, as it is now, if you look at the corporate advertising then, uh, it was all about how uh, business and industry uh, can, uh, helps uh, to, to, to underpin your values. You, you look at the values of, of family that, 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 uh, uh, that, 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 that are regularly recognized in that corporate advertising. You uh, look at the, the, the values of the, of, of, the, of the American dream, that great dream of, of, of equal opportunity. That, those are very much reflected in the corporate advertising of the period. When you look at corporate advertising today, uh, it's all about how things are wrong with America, but uh, if you help buy our uh, uh, our product, you will help support uh, our values, uh, which we, we and we will donate to uh, to, to uh, charities and uh, educational foundations that that support your values. So it, it, there's been a very much a shift in how uh, how the capitalists themselves. Uh, try to uh, uh, try to sell uh, their products. It's a, it's a shift from uh, we we support the, uh, uh, the we support the American dream. We support equality of opportunity. Uh, we support uh, uh, community. 
to uh, there's something wrong with your community. There is no equality. Uh, and But if you uh, buy our products, we'll help fix that. Reminds one of the famous quote, the problem with capitalism is capitalist and the problem with socialism is socialism. Um, with the, I, I'm curious about what value you would place on this. Even as we're talking about it, capitalism is Marx's term. Um, how much have, you know, even in the way that those of us who are proponents of free market systems somewhat bought into the conceit of Marx by talking about it in the terminology that he uses to discuss it? I, I, I think that's a very fair uh, comment. Uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, in the UK uh, never used the term capitalism. She always uh, talked about free enterprise. And free enterprise, I think, is a better, uh, better terminology than free markets. Uh, because uh, enterprise includes that, uh, that, 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 that concept of equality of opportunity uh, that I talked about earlier. If you are enterprising uh, and uh, you, you have the idea, then you can uh, make a, a difference in the world. Uh, I think that's a much better term th th than capitalism. Unfortunately, uh, it seems that we're stuck with it. How much of the appeal of perhaps not appeal of socialism, but the investment in socialism comes from what, what I think is an observable fetishization of democracy. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that as I'm talking to you here from the city of Chicago, we had a candidate either for alderman or state rep or Congress, I can't quite remember, who was one of the people trying to offer these varying explanations of this is what we mean by democratic socialism. And essentially his explanation was it was the subjecting of pretty much every single part of American life, every single part of our individual lives, to some kind of democratic process. Um, we have, I think, taken this term democracy to mean more than it actually is and lost an understanding that, you know, if it's 50% plus one acting in a tyrannical way, it's still tyranny. I, yeah, I, I, I think this, the, the, this is absolutely essential to understanding uh, the problems of, uh, of, of socialism. Uh, democracy comes from the Greek uh, demos, uh, people and katia, power. Uh, it means the people have power. The people have the force. The people have the coercion uh, the, the, there. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's incumbent on the people not to use that, uh, that, that, that coercion uh, to... Uh, uh, to, uh, to to destroy things. Uh, when you look at, well, I, you, you said something very important there, which was that, uh, that democracy is uh, basically go, going, to, uh, going to control virtually every aspect of American life. But th this is something the democratic socialists say time and time again. It's, uh, it's only about popular, uh, popular control. Uh, that's why we won't have dictators and so on. Uh, that's why uh, the, the uh, uh, talking about Stalin and, uh, and so on is, is just a red, red scare tactics. So, uh, that, that's our argument. But when you think, think it through, uh, you realize that the people just don't have the, the, the time or ability uh, to subject everything uh, to popular vote. So they are going to delegate. And this happens time and time again in every single socialist system that's been set up uh, under this principle of, uh, of, of democratic control, of popular control. They delegate uh, that katia, that power, to, uh, to bureaucrats, to commissars, to apparatchiks. 
those uh, bureaucrats then, because they have the power of the people delegated to them, become a new ruling class. It's like the who used to say, uh, uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, in the end, those bureaucrats, because of, uh, of uh, phenomena that we know, uh, know well, they're not Olympian gods. They're human beings, just like the rest of us, with human failings. So they start to accrue power to themselves. They, they increase their staff. They increase their budget. They increase their power. Uh, they, as I say, they become the new ruling class. It's exactly what happened in the, uh, George Orwell's great allegory, Animal Farm. The pigs become the new ruling class. In the end, they end up uh, walking on their hind legs and you have that, uh, uh, the, the, the great slogan of the animal revolution, all animals are equal, this change to all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And this happens time and time again, every time a socialist system attempts to uh, impose what it originally thinks of as uh, democratic control of, uh, of, of the economy. I want to connect two quotes from your book. Um, we'll go with one later in the book first. In a socialist America, religion will almost certainly be drummed out of the public square. And with a quote from earlier in the book, there's one you finding factor, however, shared by all varieties of socialism. They subjugate the individual to the collective. To what extent do you think these things are connected? So we're already seeing the decline of religiosity in America. We recently had Lyman Stone on this podcast, who's uh, done a lot of work researching the decline of religiosity in America and why he thinks that is happening. But it's the indisputable part of it is that it is true amongst the millennials and Generation Z that I'd mentioned earlier. We're seeing the rise of the nuns, uh, not the Carmelite kind, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who proclaim no religious affiliation and even now starting to go beyond that and that they proclaim, they've dropped even the you know spiritual but not religious um, skin that is often put on that. Uh, to what extent do you think this the decline of religion and the rise of socialism are connected because as I look at it, uh, I see socialism as that kind of totalizing holistic worldview acts in a religious way for a lot of people who are looking if they're young and they're not quite the Marx reading and have a deep understanding of the economic implications of socialism, they're looking to feel a part of something larger to themselves and to fill the void that they're not finding in something like religion, which, you know, offers a sense of that this life is only, um, you know, short and for now and that thereafter is forever. It allows them to fill that with another way that unfortunately, as, as we've pointed out, uh, often turns very tyrannical very fast. Yeah, I, I think these are two very important points. I, I think the, 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 the first thing that we should note is that uh, religion, religious organization, churches, uh, uh, whatever you will, uh, they have traditionally in America through association processes uh, provided uh, a huge amount of uh, social public goods uh, from their own private uh, source. Of course, to, uh, to the socialist uh, government is supposed to be the fountain origin of all those uh, of all those social goods. So, therefore, uh, government uh, has a competitor 
in the form of religion, so it will try to, uh, to try to stamp it out whenever it can. Uh, from the other side, uh, as we as we see the decline of those uh, religious groups, uh, there is a vacuum formed that, uh, that, that there is uh, the, uh, the the social goods, the public goods that those uh, organisations were providing. Uh, just uh, just 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 uh, dry, dries up. So therefore, there is uh, uh, socialism says, well, we will provide those goods uh, for you, uh, but by taxing the rich. So therefore, uh, you know, why not turn to us? So uh, the, the, there's uh, the, the, there's a, a sort of spiral uh, that, that 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 happens there with uh, which you turn more to. As the religious groups uh, recede, you turn more to government, and government wants to uh, want, wants to make sure that it is the only provider. So it uh, it takes over and stamps out the still surviving uh, religious groups. But uh, but I think what what you said about uh, uh, about the, uh, the 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 sort of spiritual side side of it is is very important. If you, if you look at the the ancient philosophers. Uh, who were uh, who were atheists? The, the Epicureans uh, are, 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 are a supreme example. They, you know, they, they were really the first uh, real atheist sect. They said, uh, "There's no. Why worry? If you're going to die, uh, why worry? Why get involved in politics at all?" Uh, so, you know, the ataraxia, the freedom from worry, was uh, you know was 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 their central. Uh, central point, and you, know, you never see any Epicurean uh, politicians. You see lots of Stoics, but very few Epicurean politicians, because uh, their, their, their atheist uh, uh, mentality said, uh, uh, "said No, we believe that there is nothing, so why worry?" But when you, it, it, it's there that uh, G.K. Chesterton's great, uh, great uh, observation uh, uh, is important. When you cease to believe in something, he said, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. And so rather than going down the ancient philosophy way, they have gone down uh, a, a road of searching for something else, uh, just anything to fill that void. And you're quite right. Socialism seems to provide that. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it speaks uh, a moral language, uh, which uh, the true atheist philosophy uh, does not. And so it provides uh, uh, a, uh, an outlet for the, the, that moral need that humanity has. That's what strikes me. The, I'm reminded of um, Irving Kristol's uh, Two Cheers for Capitalism, in which the reserved and ungiven third cheer is that while it creates wealth and prosperity, and he recognized the benefits and value of all of that, of course, it doesn't tell you how to live. And it's speaking that moral language in the opportunity to provide a sense of community, I don't know if you remember, but the opening line of the 2012 Democratic National Convention was government is the one thing that we all belong to, which is the kind of thing that, you know, gives me the heebie-jeebies. But for people 
uh, uninvested in a sense of either their local community or spiritual community of some sorts, it gives them that opportunity to fill that void. And it, the moral language of socialism that is un, often, you know, not countered by a moral language of free enterprise or free markets, um, provides them the opportunity to buy into something, giving them that moral sensibility that they're not getting otherwise. Yes, I, I, I think this this is why for 50 years or so, the uh, the conservative and uh, free market coalition uh, worked so well together. Uh, the free market side of that coalition does not have that uh, that, that moral voice. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the, the, the conservative side did not have the uh, the, the economic nous uh, to be able to make uh, make a success. Combine the two, uh, it was uh, extremely successful. Uh, the, the great philosopher of, uh, of fusionism, Frank Meyer, uh, noted that freedom needs virtue, and virtue needs freedom. Uh, that the, the, there's no sense uh, a comp- a compelled virtue is no virtue at all, and uh, uh, freedom without virtue uh, is uh, a thankless. Uh, uh, Thankless road to go down. So I think that 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 that, uh, uh, that alliance over the last 50, uh, fifty years or so, that fusionist alliance, uh, as it was known, uh, was was absolutely vital in providing a counter to uh, to, uh, to, to the forces of of, of, of socialism. Uh, now that that alliance is breaking down, you you can see that the socialists are trying to drive wedges uh, between the. Uh, uh, between the two branches of, of, of the alliance, and unfortunately, people on each side of the uh, of the of the alliance are trying to <laughs> to hammer the, hammer the, their own spikes in. So, uh, uh, I, you know, I, this, this is why I, uh, in the book I, I call for an end to this uh, this infighting and a recognition that, uh, as Frank Meyer said, freedom needs virtue, and virtue needs freedom. As someone who matriculated on a college campus not all that long ago, although longer than I'd care to remember in some instances. I I'm, have often been wanted to dismiss the inclination towards socialism in younger generations as, uh, well, we recently had Kevin Williamson on this podcast discussing the topic of socialism as well, and he said it's effectively for people on a college campus saying that you're a socialist is the equivalent of saying, I'm cool. Uh, as want as I've been to dismiss that as we observe like a functioning of society right now where um, more conservative voices had said, well, just wait until these young people get out of campus and into the real world and they'll be uh, um, mugged by reality, to borrow a phrase. So it turns out maybe we should have been more afraid of that because they seem to be implementing uh, kind of campus culture in a larger sense. So all of that to lead to the question, are we giving in to the socialist temptation now? Are you, uh, obviously, by having written a book about it, I assume you're very concerned about it. Do you think we're giving into it, and how do we resist the socialist temptation? Yes, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I was at uh, university in the 1980s, uh, in, uh, obviously in, in the United Kingdom, and uh, as far as I can tell, the campus culture was pretty much the same then. Uh, you know, uh, I was one of very few. I, the, there were ten members of the Conservative Association in my college 
uh, Oxford has a collegiate system, and my college has 600 people in it, and 10 of us were conservatives. Uh, it, 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 uh, in, in those days, uh, it, it, it depended on uh, on who you were talking to as to as to uh, which which was cool, uh, whether you were a Trotskyite or a Stalinist. There were even cases where 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 speakers were chased off campus by uh, uh, by by mobs, mostly of Trotskyites. It has to be said. Uh, The Stalinists you could have a drink with. (laughs) (laughs) So so in that in in that sense, today's culture uh, on campus, I don't think, is necessarily that much different from what it was. Uh, even even 30 years ago, I think the point uh, that that you make about uh, it 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 being now being carried with uh, people after they leave college, I think that is different. I think certainly the uh, the, you know, the, the, the 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 uncertainty uh, caused by the terror attacks of the of two thousand of the two thousands and then the financial crisis. I think that the, the uh, th- those meant that a lot of people couldn't get the 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 first uh, uh, the, the foot on the first rung of of the ladder out of that that system, and so yeah, we're now seeing uh, 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 the elder millennials are now uh, forty or approaching forty, and a lot of them still haven't got that that that, that haven't been able to be mugged by reality. Because they haven't been able to, to to get a foot on the housing ladder or or uh, or, or, or uh, a more permanent job, so I I think that that is uh, that that has been a, a really significant problem. He is Ian Murray, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington D.C., where he is vice president for strategy and a senior fellow, author of the book *The Socialist Temptation*. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on Act Online. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.